Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bound. How do you write a rock and roll memoir? The answer is read the new second instalment of Brett Anderson's autobiography called Afternoons with the Blinds Drawn. The title arches its eyebrow at the excess that came with the success of the frontman of Suede, a band whose fate was sealed when the editor of the British Music Weekly Melody Maker decided to remove the question mark from the cover line The Best New Band in Britain in 1992. Well, that and a fate sealed by making unforgettable music. Anderson is a fine writer of songs about finding love in the seamy side of London, death in its damp bedsits and romance in its service stations. And his pen on the page casts an equally dark and delightful spell. Much of the book follows the making of Suede's first three albums, especially 1994's Dogman Star, a sweeping operatic record fuelled by dark desires and a destructive relationship with his co-writer Bernard Butler. But there's a refreshing lack of I was right or woe is me. Anderson is waspish about himself, great on relationships, fame and excess, although this is a million miles from those sticky stock memoirs of sex and drugs tell-alls. Anderson is also amusingly self-critical of some of the band's mid-career output, writing, With the clarity of hindsight, 1999's A New Morning should never have been released, and describing the album as like a child wandering off into the traffic. Fortunately, someone else was doing the band's PR work at the time. Suede were the band apart in the so-called Britpop wars of the 1990s and noughties, and Anderson's voice on the page rings as true as it does on stage. File Afternoons with the Blinds Drawn next to the greats of memoir, rock and roll or otherwise. And today, Brett Anderson joins me in the studio. Brett, thank you very much for coming in. Who knew that a book of, of good writing about writing songs could be such a disruptor? in the sense that no one had ever thought, thought to kind of do it in that way before. Did you look at it as writing the memoir as a musician or as a writer, actually? Well, I suppose I looked at it as a writer, really. I, mean, kind of, I very much enjoyed the whole experience of writing Cold Black Mornings and I kind of yeah. wanted to write something else, I suppose, and I didn't want to write the same book again because I thought it would be impossible to write the same book again about a different phase of my life, really. I thought the success of Cold Black Mornings, you know, from a kind of like writer's perspective, was that it, it kind of, it was quite a sort of nice little personal account of the detail of my of my upbringing, and I liked that. And it had a charm to it because of that. I think as soon as you become successful, the scruffy, lovely, charming bits of your life sort of disappear. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I couldn't try and project that story onto the phase of my life where I'd become successful. So I thought, how can I make it interesting? I thought, well, I can look at myself as almost like a specimen. Uh, I can look at what happened to me after having gone through the sort of machinery of success and yeah. fame and look at myself from that perspective almost as if as if I'm a kind of like a analyst looking at <laughs> looking at a, a subject it's a tough job to thing. do to yourself isn't it yeah i suppose it is but i think with enough sort of time perspective and time and and distance from it you can you can do that and that's sort of like you know i, I could never have written this book in the heat of the moment because i just don't yeah. think you have that kind of perspective but you know looking at myself all these things happening to me 25 years ago it is almost very much like you're a different person and i can sort of like you know i can be much more objective about it i think 
Some people who were fans of Colbert Mornings described it as almost willful that it, it sort of the last chapter was pre Suede's yeah. debut album took mm. off and the singles mm. took off and all the rest of it. Um, did you look at it that way, or was it, did that seem like exactly the book that you wanted to write? Did you write it with another book in mind? I know you've sort of prefaced this one with a book you mm. said you wouldn't write, mm. but did did this the timeline of this one suggest itself very obviously? Yeah, it, it probably seems that way to people, but I, I genuinely, you know, intended just to write one book and, and finish it. I thought it was, there was something, something um, sort of willfully obscure about kind of uh, about finishing at exactly the point that most other rock biographies start. I kind of I like the, the bloody mindedness <laughs> yeah. of it. It was kind of like sort of mischievous and it kind of appealed to me giving people exactly the story they didn't want, you know. But, <laughs> yeah, there you, you know, go. It's, it's, it's sort of, you know, rock autobiographies, you know, with a couple of exceptions, they tend to be fairly predictable. They tend to be the same story with, with the names changed. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to kind of like come at it from a different angle. And with this new one, it was really key for me to, to try and find a way, an entry point for me that wasn't just a, a sort of a litany of kind of the usual boring events, you know, the kind of the, the success, the, the excess, all of these things, you know. Yeah. I wanted to kind of come at it from a different place. Yeah. And did you think, though, being the founder of a band that you've sort of described yourself as outsiders in both mm. both volumes of the memoir, yeah. but a band that means sort of so much to people, the fans of the band aren't, you know, they don't, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not, Suede aren't sort of someone's third favourite band. Right? No, no, we're a Marmite You're either band. in it or you're in it. <laughs> you know, you either love yeah. us or you hate us. You are, yeah, we're, we're a Marmite band. Yeah, yeah, we are. So you could sort of take a risk on the willfulness and on mm. the kind of, you know, and, and you talk about this in the book. I love how you write about choosing what will be a single and then choosing what will be a B-side. Mm-hmm. And mm. then there are some, I mean, there are such wonderful, there are such wonderful songs that are B-sides. And that's something to do with that willfulness. Is that something that's still in you, that kind of like, well, sod it. Yeah. If people really want to discover this stuff, they'll just have to turn it over or they'll listen to side two. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a personality to a, to a band in the same way that there's a personality to people. That's what that's what I've learned. The, the, the bands there's a sort of swayed personality that kind of isn't any of us, but is all of us at the same time. It's an amalgam of all of our personalities, and it, it makes it, it makes these kind of like willful willful obscure decisions about things like kind of <laughs> kind of like that song's really brilliant. Let's release it as a B side. You know, it, it's it's <laughs> these strange kind of like career sabotaging (laughs) decisions about what what we did yeah I I kind of the the whole b-side thing kind of came from a time when sort of b-sides mattered and Mm. (laughs) there was there was something lovely about it I write in the book that it kind of came from the Smiths and you know that tradition of releasing great b-sides which they always did and I always kind of loved it as a fan because it felt like a kind of a special gift to, to to the fan you know, you're kind of honouring their devotion with a kind of gift of something. It's about that, discovery and it's about having that the patience maybe to yeah, bore down. That kind of, you know, you're honouring that devotion with with a gift that, that that someone that only kind of delves into the surface wouldn't get kind of thing. And and, and that seemed... But lo- looking back at it, it's, it was a waste. You know, I, I kind of... <laughs> I regret the songs that we wasted as B-sides because they would have made the album stronger, you know. Yeah. For, lots of those songs are some of the best songs we wrote and I do, I do regret that. But Possibly you don't really realise that till you till you look back on them. You know, it's it, making an album is an odd thing. You go through so many sort of 
mental games and convince yourself that this is the right thing to do and you have and you lose perspective like you do with lots of things you know we can talk about to the birds at some other time yeah i mean that's another, <laughs> i mean that's a classic it's you know, a good one yeah, it's, yeah it's one of my favorites as well yeah you're really good on you you just said this yourself at the at the top of our interview about the machinery of being in a, in a band and all the rest of it and the machinery of being in a label and what what the press does mm. and that's presumably a real big part of that machinery as well you're so yeah. good on on how the press skewed you how you played up to it how you felt mm. you had to and how you felt sort of out of control in that that's a really unusual thing to put in a memoir mm. as i say usually there's all the excess and and this is this has got a lot of kind of forensic looking at yourself in the mirror. Did you mm. feel like that at the time that you were kind of excited but you didn't know how to control the media or present yourself almost? Was that in I think hindsight? it was. I think it was very excited. It's, it, it yeah. was a, it was very it was very seductive, and I did get kind of like carried along by it, and I did you know fall into those traps of believing my own hype and all of that kind of nonsense, but. Um, it was a really key part of the Swade story, the the, the 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 influence of the media in our story, and it's, it's strangely, it's not it's not really anything that I'm particularly proud of, though. It's kind of like that people, I think that people are always a bit suspicious of bands that are kind of that seem to be hyped, you know. And and Swade were definitely hyped, you know. We were kind of lots of journalists got very very excited about uh, over uh, over excited, and there was lots of fruffiness about Swade, and there was a great need for. Great sort of British hope. Yeah, it seemed as well. I think it, I think there was. I mean, I think yeah. you know, you look at it, look at the the music at the time, and 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 it was going through the doldrums. And and I think Suede were were, were a very exciting prospect for lots of journalists. It was a, a band that kind of like you know you, they could get their teeth into. But we're also making writing some some good songs. But yeah, the the, the whole media thing is it, it does really fascinate me. It does really really fascinate me what it did to us and and its influence. You know, I've kind of. Only recently realised that the, the, you know there's a tendency for musicians to sort of blame the media and be suspicious of the media and sort of say oh you know mess me up and all of this sort of yeah. thing, and you kind of I think that's a very sort of childish point of view. You you got to realise that the media is just it's just amoral. It gets excited about bands. It, it, it exaggerates all of these sorts of things. You know, it doesn't have any. It, there's no. It, it doesn't have a kind of consciousness as such. It's and really it, interesting considering it's a thing made up of people. Yeah, it could but, be like yourself. But but it doesn't. It. There's yeah. no. There's no sort of centralized figure pulling no. the strings. It's just a series of disconnected people kind of getting, kind of <laughs> winding each other up and getting, yeah. and getting excited about things and. And I suppose I just wanted to sort of look at my journey through that kind of whole machinery and sort of sort of look at look at how it affected me, and that's what interested me. And I, I still I still think about it a lot about the kind of person that I've become because of that journey, and whether I you know I'm fascinated by the kind of slide indoors concept of of who I would be if I hadn't been through that journey, what sort of person I would be. Yeah. And that's something you can One more, you can one more great know. song as a B-side, Brett Anderson, and it could be you. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah, you'll never, it's one of those things you never know. It's, yeah. You know, just, and do you miss it? Do you miss, I mean, now you obviously, with your current records, with your solo work, with your new records with Suede, and especially with the, with the books, and as time has gone on, you're being interviewed by different people for different publications. Mm. Do you miss the splashy kind of war warring nature of the British music press in the nineties. Um, they're much I mean I don't I don't personally miss it. I don't personally miss being part of that that kind of craziness. I don't miss yeah. those cra that, that that craziness. But I, I, I feel as though culturally we've lost something since we don't now we don't have mm. that. Now we don't have those the same kind of gatekeepers anymore. 
there's an incident that I talk about in the book. The title of the chapter is Dog Shit and Diamonds, and it focuses on a review that was done by the Melody Maker, a guy called Steve, Steve Sutherland, who was the editor of the, of the Melody Maker at the time. And he wrote a review which used the phrase dog, dog shit and diamonds to compare suede to a band called Kingmaker. I'm not kind of like in any way sort of trying to comment on the relative merits of suede and Kingmaker, but it's interesting how we were used as, as these kind of like sort of pawns in this, in the, in this kind of media game. And I, t- I talk about how important sort of critical invective is to shape bands. And I think that's a really key thing. We don't you, now we live in a much softer world. in in the In the seventies, eighties, and nineties, scenes were invented, and bands were crushed and created and destroyed through this process, which was sometimes very damaging to people. But it also, on the flip side of that, it created some great bands. You know, the yeah. whole the whole punk movement kind of came out of that that weekly debate between you know Tony Parsons and you know the, yeah. Uh, yeah. so the, so it kind of like did create you can be suspicious of of the media's role in the creation of bands, but you can also see that it, that it that it does have a role, and I do feel sorry that these days we don't have that constant sort of dialogue because I do think we're sort of missing something culturally, and I and I do find because of that I love discovering new bands but I find it personally harder and harder to, to find new things yeah. that I'm excited about and I don't know that's just because I'm a 52 year old two year old man and I'm out of touch or because those bands aren't being generated through through this sort of media discussion anymore I don't know I don't know if it's chicken and the egg you know yeah that's fascinating to hear you say that considering how much you were a celebrated band but also a pawn in a kind of bigger game Absolutely, of selling yeah. weekly music papers and all the rest of it yeah. um, you know and, and you know there's all sorts of things that went into it that weren't just about the music who was the best band yeah um of course as well and on that you you know you hint at the kind of like overdoing it yeah um and it's it's that's refreshing as well not to read something where someone's glorying in the squalor <laughs> despite, despite well, there some a, of the, there is a bit of squalor well, there's quite a lot of squalor. Well, I mean, we, actually, I'd love yeah. to meet your old flatmate. I mean, there's a, wow. there's a bit of misery memoir in there as well. <laughs> there, is isn't there? Bit, but, um, there is a bit, but you described that as sort of saying that so much of what British music was about and what British pop culture was about, so much was about sort of being Mike Lee, and then you sort of said characterised perhaps by some of the British music industry and by what these what the, the kind of PR advisors of these bands became. Hmm. Um, that you know you were still a sort of band and other people were kind of mock knees and kind of like carrying on, like mm. a carry-on film and all the mm. rest of mm. it. Do you realise at the time that you had to stay quite strong to your roots and who you were as a band in order to not act up a bit more? Yeah, I think you know what, I mean? what happened was was that we were. it felt as though we were kind of offered a role in the early 90s. It felt as though we were offered this sort of slightly kind of nationalistic kind of flag-waving, jingoistic role as this sort of flag-bearers of what later became Britpop. And it felt as though if we'd have wanted that role, we could have picked that up Mm. and ran with it. And we didn't want that role because quite early on, I saw it as being sort of unpleasant and, and, and simplistic and crass. And I sort of didn't really want anything to do with it, actually. And as soon as I saw what how the media were kind of creating a scene and I've always hated scenes and it started off with Suede B, you know we talked about we were documenting British life we weren't celebrating it and the bands that sort of came later were kind of celebrating it. and that was the difference and that was the distinction that I always try and make 
And we rejected this role, uh, and we went on to make the second album, which was called Dogman Star, which is a very, very kind of anti-Britpop record in lots of ways. It was about kind of dislocation and alienation and a sense of sort of like internationalism, I suppose, in a way. It was it was supposed to be unparochial. Yeah. Um, where 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 when the British media at the time was sort of disappearing into this kind of cosy dad's army kind of fantasy world. We were kind of doing the opposite. We felt as though we kind of laid the foundations for that, and it had been distorted into something else. One never knows when you when you look at other bands how much of it is them and how much of it is kind of what the media projects onto them. Yeah. And it's it's those two things are kind of inseparable, I think. But I'm proud that we that swayed. You know, you asked earlier about being true to ourselves, and. One thing I think historically you can look at with Suede, and uh, I'm really, really proud that we didn't get sucked into a sort of nationalistic, misogynistic kind of thing that I think lots of other bands did get sucked into. And at a time when it was very, very unfashionable to do so, we were sort of talking about aspects of gender fluidity, which now I think when you look back at us in, in a historical context seems very relevant to, to 2019. And the kind of issues that the other bands from our era were talking about would feel very anachronistic now to me. It does, doesn't it? It feels yeah. like a lot longer ago somehow than it was. It does. The whole loaded <coughs> men behaving badly misogynistic culture sits very uncomfortably with the sort of like social and sexual politics of 2019. And I think we, what the, the issues that Sway were talking about, I'm very comfortable that we, we stood firm in that kind of wave of laddishness. And, yeah. we, and we, we didn't, we sung about the things that we, we sung about and we, we, we stood firm to, our, to what I think is, is, is st- are still interesting issues. And I wanted to ask you about, about that as well because when the first album, the first couple of albums, you, the, the, the way you dressed, the haircuts and all the rest of it, there was yeah. something kind of gender fluid. There was, there was a yeah. fluidity of, of, of gender, possibly of sexuality about yeah. it. It was very attractive thing actually it was great it looked great and so different to yeah. your competitors in inverted commas um did you ever and did you ever kind of decide to go full did you ever wish you went full bowie or <laughs> you know what i mean and really become someone else on stage um so with the dressing up i and, think it would have been i never wanted to sort of kind of parody it to that, yeah. that sort of thing too much and and the whole gender fluidity thing you know it was people sort of misinterpreted it as a, as a sort of as a sort of homage to the 1970s like it was kind of like like this sort of thing about oh, we we kind of like we want to be a glam rock band and it was never that really it was mm. just kind of like it was about so it it was about, you know gender the, the term gender fluidity didn't exist in 1993 and 1992 but looking back on it it was a sort of an attempt to sort of position myself as a sort of as someone that wasn't straight or gay or any or any of those that didn't fit into those boxes and i tried to you know i very clumsily tried to sort of express myself uh, in those ways when i when i described myself as a bisexual man who's never had a homosexual experience and it was an attempt (laughs) to sort of like defy the categories and it did the exact opposite you gave uh, but you gave, gave, gave me people a lot of rope there but yeah, it was such it, an it honest placed, thing it placed it? me in this kind of like box labeled <laughs> bisexual and, it, and and the irony was that i was trying to defy to exactly do the opposite and yeah. and again i i talk in in the book about how clumsy i was there because it was a misunderstanding of how the media works and the media needs to be simplistic um you know when you when you when your quote is taken out of context 
and uh, it's always going to be misinterpreted. So I talk a lot about my, my you know, my misunderstanding of how the media works, which, which is kind of like interesting, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I loved the chapter headings. We start with the book I said I wouldn't write. Yes. Ding. Um, and we end with anything can happen in life, especially nothing. Yeah, that's a that's a um, anything can happen in life, especially some, um... nothing is 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 a Michelle Welbeck uh, quote. Okay, yeah, from, I thought yeah, it's from, from, from Platform or Atomize or something like that. It's always really amused me that quote. Yeah. Um, and and uh, yeah, affect Southern wankers and dog shit and diamonds. There must have been some guffaws in the Anderson study, presumably when these were. <laughs> When these were you going, yeah, I know, I know what I'll do. This this is a good one. Yeah, I liked, uh, I quite like the sort of the, the sort of mix <laughs> mix of high and lowbrow stuff. There's there's quotes from Philip Larkin in there, yeah. and there's quotes from from William Blake, and there's also sort of like you know heckles that we got at kind of Guruk Bay Hotel in 1992. <laughs> so it, I quite like the sort of the, the, the clash of high, yeah the, the the kind of you know the, the clash of the two things. And when you sit, I mean, I was going to say sit down to write the book because that's what people think happens. It inevitably has to happen like that. Do you get, are you in the same sort of space mentally? Are you, you know, you, you talk about having a very sort of fat notebook that you fill out with, with, with lyrical mm. ideas and song ideas and things. Mm. Is it the same, the same notebook you use to write your memoir? I mean, is it the same sort of half of your brain, as it were? It's not the same notebook, no. I, I, I mean, my, my sort of song notebooks are different. I, they're just literally just a sort of jumble of kind of little phrases I kind of I scribble down. No, I mean, it, it, I sort of sit down at a computer like anyone. I, mean, in fact, I wrote the first book as, as a series of emails because I didn't have Word, so I just used to write <laughs> very long emails and send them off to my send them off to my manager. That's a great. Go, that's a great shows great faith in your um, <laughs> in the project. Yeah. I won't bother downloading but, it. I just, yeah, I didn't. I, just I kind of didn't really know. Okay. I'm, I'm sort of a bit of a technophobe. I'm one of those people that kind of like you know, if if, if anything's good, it'll still be good in three years' time, and that's when I'll kind of start using it. I, I yeah. just don't like being. I don't like being on the cusp of, of of new technology. I like new technology to bleed through to me when it's proved that it's worth. It's proved it's worth. Other people make the mistakes. Do you know exactly, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, um, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's all connected, isn't it? You know, kind of like writing. You know, writing Cold Black Mornings very much informed the last record that we made, which was um, the Blue Hour. You know, but, you know, writing about my family and my childhood. Mm informed you know thinking about family which is it's an obsession of mine um, my family and I kind of use that as a concept for for the for the kind of like the, the the sort of narrative motor for that record which was about fear of losing a child uh, yeah that, that feels th- like your new yeah it's it's not bed sits and cd it's not the obsession with that it's no. the obsession with something that's wholesome but nonetheless more terrifying yeah absolutely it's 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 looking for there's a kind of tangle of basic human emotions that all art is about and basically it's just how you clothe it you know and and so the early the early songs are about passion and lust and 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 alienation and sadness and these sorts of things and fear and th- these later songs I'm writing are, are about similar things they're about they're it's looking it's looking for extremity of emotion in one's life I'm a 52 year old man with a family and so therefore I don't have the same kind of you know the same sort of like dramas that I had as a young man it would be kind of really parodic of me to sort of like try and write about write about my life in the same way so I, I need to find the fear and the tension and the paranoia and different things so I think about what what stimulates that in me and it's it's kind of fear of Losing kids, yeah, and those sorts of things. I look, I, I look for it in different places, you know. And is that take more of a 
stretch of the imagination to be writing about that. I don't think you're so. Because you're not, you, as you say, you're a 52-year-old man, but you're, you know, you're the front man of Suede. You're yeah. not writing the Volvo Estate album here. <laughs> I mean, no. you're still writing songs that sound like the first few albums, but yeah. with a different lyrical yeah. bent to them, I suppose. Yeah, but no, I, I, no, I don't think there's a. The, the, I don't think it's a. It's it's a stretch. It's a, mm. you know, I've always every song is you know, no matter how much you you want to believe it's not true. There's a there's a sort of fictionalization of every, of every song. You know. It, it, don't believe that every single lyric that you hear, even from the so-called greats, is is everything they feel. They they they're so, using so, rhyming's handy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you've got to yeah. obey the laws of music and rhyme and all these sorts of things and rhythm and stuff like that. You kind of you're manipulating. You're kind of you're you're you're, you're manufacturing feeling to a certain extent. And of course, you draw on real feelings, but there's always a, an element where you're sort of sort of fictionalizing. And no, I don't feel. I think with my latest sort of. Songs are very much not. No, it's a, it's a it's a fear that that pervades the way I live my life, and I think there's a there's a fear in uh, in lots of kind of contemporary fiction as well. You know, there's so many sort of like uh, books I read about children going missing. There's so many mm. kind of TV dramas about that, those kind of things, and I haven't really seen it penetrate music yet. And so I kind of thought that, that would be an interesting starting point. I can't keep doing this. I'm, I'm looking for an entry point to the next album I'm writing, and I'm. I, I can't. I've written two albums which have been obsessed with family, and then the next one's got to go somewhere else. So I'm looking for an entry point for the next one. Well, Michelle Welbeck's always a fairly rich resource <laughs> of a thought. If you, yeah. You, if you scratch your head and make that family family friendly, not that it needs to be. <laughs> family friendly, Michelle Welbeck. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's exactly. Funny. It's only half. A, it's, it's three pages long. <laughs> it's the perfect novel. Um, it's a pamphlet. It's a pamphlet. Um, and one of the things that stood out from Cold Black Mornings was you saying that one day, you, growing up near Crawley in Sussex, you kind of just sort of stood on the railway platform and gazed up towards <laughs> London. Yeah. And, and I don't want to... This is going to sound <laughs> weird. I grew up not far from you. And Whereabouts you, did you grow up? Well, I grew up in West Sussex. I grew up um, near Petworth in okay. West Sussex. Yeah, I know. Um, and, you know, that's very beautiful. But, you know, it, I hankered after this thing. Mm. It feels like that sort of idea of being hopeful for but fearful about London and, and all mm. the things it might be informed mm. so much of through your universe. Yeah, I still can you? see you as a little boy standing on that railway platform dreaming of, or a teenager it's, dreaming it's of quite, that. It's quite an image, isn't it? Kind Does that kind of come back? Tracks, well, it's, yeah. quite a, it's a really poetic image. It's, quite yeah. a, it's, it's an unforgettable image. Does that, is that sort of in the back of your mind still? Or have you, do you have no... Or do, do, do the roots there kind of... Are they all sort of emotional sort of emotionally lost or are they kind of the roots to london yeah no the roots to that sort of that boy gazing up the railway track. oh i see that's a, yeah i mean that's a really inter- interesting interesting question because it's you know writing cold black mornings was very much about kind of reconnecting with a sort of lost version of myself i suppose you know i was kind of like i was re-inhabiting that the mind of someone that i hadn't really sort of connected with for for many years mm-hmm. and that was really interesting and finding out what was good about him and there's, I think there's a tendency to sort of think that as you grow up, that you're always kind of, you know, your former selves become irrelevant and, you know, you're always kind of evolving and becoming a better person. And I think there's a, you know, the philosopher Hegel has a, has a kind of a take on this where he, he kind of like, he talks about the importance of phases of history, different phases of history can kind of sort of like do have worth, you know, as a society we always think we're evolving but it's important to sort of refer back to things, oh in the middle ages they were kind of they had these values and you know it's the same sort of thing, like when you're young 
there was a sort of like a a sort of wonderful sort of scruffy naivety that that you, that you you kind of end up losing and it was really important for me to reconnect with that and there's there's always phases of your life that that that, that are kind of precious i think it comes through so much also in afternoons with the blindstraw on that you know there there's the yeah there's a na- there's a naivety or, an, or a vulnerability that yeah. runs through it but as a as a sort of as a sign of strength actually it seems well, that I think very much the same the same boy that became a man wrote, wrote yeah, those books. Yeah, you know? yeah, and it's important not to lose sight of that. And I think I think this book, Afternoons with the Blinds Drawn, is 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 interesting because it it goes, it starts off with me being that kind of like callow sort of youth, and I, as I kind of go through the machinery of fame and success, I'm changing, and I'm and I I'm kind of conscious of that in the book. I'm I'm conscious of how it's sort of. You know how it's how how I get narrowed down to, you know, you become a specialist in a subject and you become ambitious and you you sort of lose that that sort of naive charm and 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 that comes to a point where you become broken and yeah. you become sort of like you you start disintegrating. You don't really know who you are and that's all part of that process as well. And that's very much about about losing sight of who you really are. And 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 it's only sort of within the last few years that I've been able to kind of reconnect with my former self and say well there was sort of interesting things about how I used to be yeah for sure um power to that power to your writing elbow thank you um Brett Anderson thank you very much indeed thank you so much Afternoons with the Blinds Drawn is the new autobiography by Brett Anderson and it's out in all good bookshops now. And you've been listening to Monocle on Culture. Join us next week when we'll be heading into the night at the Barbican's new exhibition on cabaret and clubs in modern art. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you.